This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 5 You Whip Her? Five weeks from the night, Judith faced her reflection in Mrs. Pruitt's cracked looking glass while dressing to go to the theater. She sat before the mirror in what the Tomlinsons called the bird's eye maple room. The face that looked back at her seemed to belong to a different person. Gone was the tout anxiety of the mouth the pinpoint sharpness of eyes worn with contriving. For the first time since her father's death, Judith Amory knew the luxury of a home. She thrilled to the knowledge that the whole family welcomed her presence. Richard's mother, his married sisters, even his young brother Will, seemed pleased to have the schoolmistress in the house. Their cordiality had in it something of relief from strain. A far less disconcerting person than Judith would have sensed that her presence had much the effect of a cup of oil poured on bubbling waters, for the simple reason that Richard's wife had taken a fancy to her. To Judith, this paradox was exquisitely humorous. She was too smart, however, to misinterpret the invalid's goodwill. For some purpose of her own, the wife of Richard Tomlinson wanted Miss Amory to have the Timberley School. Judith was not long discovering what that purpose was. Abigail wanted a teacher who would promise to whip Thorne Tomlinson. She did not put the matter in plain words. The new teacher might go to Richard and ask questions. But she let Judith know that she favored her because of her stand on the subject of discipline for girls. Abigail had fallen into the habit of calling the schoolmistress into her room when she came home from school in the afternoon and asking how the Tomlinson young people were doing. Judith soon learned that there was only one with whom she was really concerned, and that was the girl with the starry eyes. She inquired perfunctorily about her own little boys in the primer class, likewise the Turner nephews and nieces. But when she asked about Thorne, her eyes glittered, and she licked her lips eagerly when Judith confessed the child was something of a problem. She's like what you said, isn't she? said Abigail. One of those sly, sneaking things that threw a whole school into turmoil. Honesty compelled Judith to deny that she had found anything sly or sneaking in Thorn. On the contrary, she's quite open in her mischief. She's forever playing tricks to amuse the other children. Sometimes I think she lacks concentration. Yet she seems remarkably bright. If only she would pay attention. I've about made up my mind to speak to Mr. Tomlinson about her. And this was true. Judith had been puzzled by the puckish behavior of the half-grown girl who went by the name of Tomlinson yet who called Richard by his first name, while the other children called him either father or uncle. She had asked no other questions, and no one had offered an explanation. But whatever Thorne's status, she was hated by Abigail Tomlinson, with a jealous hatred that was hard to reconcile with the difference in their ages. Don't talk to Richard about her, said Abigail sharply. 
anything that concerns Thorne, you're to take up with me. Understand? When Judith had acquiesced, Abigail went on. She needs discipline. You have my permission, Miss Amory, to use any means you like to bring about results. Mr. Tomlinson is too easy. He doesn't realize that girls have to be whipped sometimes. Whipped hard. Harder than boys. I have a very good whip if you need it. The sick woman raised herself up on her elbow and pointed to a peg in the corner. There it is. An old riding whip that I once used on a bad-tempered horse. Perhaps you'd better take it with you. There was something fantastically ugly in this sick, frail woman, half rising from bed to point out a cruel whip with which she wanted a little girl flogged. But to please the invalid, Judith took the whip and promised to use it at her own discretion. A few days later, when she was again summoned to Abigail's room, she gave her a conspiratorial smile and reported that Thorne was behaving much better. You whipped her? Judith put her fingers to her lips and saved the necessity of direct falsehood. We don't want anyone else to know, do we? You mean Richard? Abigail's eyes gleamed jealously. She'll tell him. I don't think she will, said Judith smoothly. To the Tomlinsons, she never could have explained her method of appeasing the invalid. If she had said, all you have to do is lie to her, they would have been shocked. In this staunch Methodist household, a lie was an abomination and no extremity of circumstance justified its use. To the young woman who had lived all her life by her wits, deception was one's first expedient. She could pretend to anything that served her purpose, and her purpose just now was to cement the friendship of Richard Tomlinson's wife. She had arrived a bit wistfully at this compromise with certain groundless hopes, for the memory of a night at a theater still lingered like the scent of a rose. A single incident had pressed it imperishably. It was the custom of the Tomlinson household to gather about the fire of an evening, and while knitting needles slacked and jackknives plied, Richard would read aloud, Many a sock was knitted. Many a whip mended, amid wholesome chuckles at the antics of Mr. Pickwick and Sam Weller. Dickens was the best-selling author of the day, and the family reading circle was about halfway through David Copperfield at the time of Judith's advent. There had been no evening readings for some time previously because of Abigail's illness and Thorne's enforced absence. But on the first evening that the new boarder took her place among them, they were all present. Abigail sitting up for the first time in days, and Thorne back among the other youngsters, clustered about the fire. The fat red volume of Dickens still lay face open on the table where Richard had last laid it. But instead of resuming the novel, he went to the bookcase and took from it a small black book, well-worn with much reading. Aren't we going to hear some more about Uriah Heep? demanded his son Ricky. Suppose we let Uriah rest for tonight. Here's something more exciting. What? A play called Macbeth. How does it begin? Oh, it begins with a bang. Listen. He began to read... Act 1, Scene 1, An Open Place. 
thunder, and lightning. Enter three witches. And then he lifted his eyes from the book and looked straight at Judith. That was all, just a twinkle of the eye. But it brought again the shared thrill of waiting for a curtain to rise, and it sent her spirits soaring. That had been her welcome from Richard Tomlinson. So far, it was the only welcome he had given her. She had not talked alone with him once. They met at mealtimes, but he was usually engrossed in some talk about the farm with his brother, or Jesse Moffat. During the day, their paths seldom crossed, and at other times, he was generally to be found with his invalid wife. Abigail seemed jealous of every moment that he was out of her sight. It was a strange marriage, Judith decided. From what Ellie Barkley had told her, and what her own sharp eyes had seen, she was able to conjecture pretty accurately how it had come about. Richard Tomlinson had been in his second year of college when he came to the conclusion that he was not fitted for the ministry. His decision had been a crushing blow to family and friends. So marked were his talents that he seemed even to the materialistic that he was throwing away a brilliant career. For it was a day of pulpit oratory, but Richard considered the pulpit something more than a rostrum for rhetorical eloquence. Far from being irreligious, as of course he was branded, he was deeply conscious of the sacredness of the high calling to which so many ambitious men aspired. To his mother, he explained that he did not consider himself good enough to be a preacher, and that was the only defense he ever offered. His father, even then in his last illness, never recovered from the blow. He had hoped to see his son ordained before his death. Now that hope was blasted, but a stubborn belief that Richard might yet be brought to see the error of his ways led the dying man to arrange a marriage which was to prove a calamity to the entire family. Abigail Hoos, at 21 of the zealots of the Methodist Church, was chosen by Roger Tomlinson as a fitting wife for his son. She was a couple of years his senior, and her religious zeal, so his father hoped, would inspire Richard to resume the work for which he had been preparing. Richard, eager to appease his disappointed father, had entered into the marriage without protest. Abigail was pretty, angelically sweet, and he was barely 18 years old. He was prepared to be a loving husband. But scarcely were they joined in wedlock when he realized that he was yoked to a woman who was good in every negative connotation of the word. Abigail's was a nature in which religion's only property was to curdle what milk of human kindness it exuded. All that was harsh and repressive in the doctrines of the church she adhered to. All that was gracious and loving she distrusted. Her outward sweetness was a mask which she did not bother to wear in private. She had married Richard to save him from the devil, and this she would do if she had to take him personally to hell in order to negotiate. Their marriage was a nightmare from the beginning. On their first night together, he had found himself clasping a snow maiden who would not melt or even thaw in his arms. Richard, 
I thought you were a gentleman. I'm your husband, Abigail. That's no excuse for behaving like a brute. If it had been left to the bewildered, apologetic boy, the marriage would have terminated right there. For he had married a fanatical prude whose frigidity was matched only by her arrogance. But Abigail had intelligence of a sort, and much reading of the Old Testament enlightened and finally convinced her of the nature of the curse laid upon Eve. With an air of martyrdom, she informed her husband that she was ready to obey the biblical injunction. In due course of time, their son Richard was born. A year later, again by Abigail's decree, there was a second son. But when, after the usual interval, she stonily signified her willingness to assume again the burden of reproduction, Richard told her they would have no more children. He was kind enough to imply that consideration for her health was the reason. But Abigail knew better, for perversely with the birth of her late son Roger, some belated seeds of passion stirred in her frozen nature and, with her husband's announcement, sent forth shoots, seeking a son which no longer shone. From that moment, her life was like a creeping vine. They continued to occupy the conjugal bedchamber, for supper quarters would have meant a community-wide scandal, and Richard had enough talk to live down as it was. But though he preserved the outward semblance of his marriage, his private conduct towards his wife was as chaste as hers had been on their wedding night. Abigail's desires, thus frustrated in their inception, found vent in the pursuit of her original purpose. Night and day she exhorted and berated her husband for his refusal to enter the ministry. When he turned a deaf ear, she denounced him as no Christian. Perhaps he was too much Christian to be a theologian, though Abigail never could have understood a thing like that. Even he did not understand it. What he did know and could not explain was the riotous joy of living which throbbed in his veins and which his strict upbringing made him distrust. Perhaps he was feared. His Puritan soul was housed in a pagan body. Perhaps he had merely a love for things of the earth. Every opening bud, every note of mockingbird and cardinal was a delight to him. In spring, when red buds blossomed and honey locusts made him half drunk with their sweetness, he felt quite sure he was not called to tell other people about their sins. So he had settled down to the business of managing the farm, an occupation for which his younger brother was better suited. And for enjoyment, he turned to books, and for escape, there was the occasional trip to the city and perhaps the theater. This last indulgence was frowned upon by Abigail, but he did not let it deter him. He no longer tried to explain himself to Abigail, nor to his family, nor to anyone. Not until a vagabond child came to Timberley did Richard find it possible to explain himself, and to her, it was unnecessary. There was no one in the front room when Judith came downstairs. She had changed from her school dress to her dark red merino, and she had tied a velvet ribbon around her throat. 
It was a Friday evening, which meant that young Will would go to see the girl whom he was currently sparking. And there would be no one in the fireside reading circle except the children and their grandmother and Richard and Judith. Abigail had taken to her bed again. But the fire, which was never lighted in this room till after supper, was already brightly ablaze. The piano was open, the chairs grouped around it as though in expectation of a gathering. No open book laid face down to mark a place. Judith had a premonition of disappointment. When she went out to the dining room, Miss Anne confirmed her fears. Richard was having company this evening. Lucius Goff, John Barclay, and Doc Bayard. The four of them get together about once a month, at the academy as a rule. But since Abigail's been sick, she doesn't like having Richard out at night, so the men are coming here. I told Richard they could have the front room to themselves. You and I and the children will sit out here till bedtime. We can have our apples, as usual, and maybe you can read to us instead of Richard. We're all on pins and needles to see if anything's turned up yet for Mr. Micawber. Anne Tomlinson laughed merrily, tucked a curly gray lock under her neat little cap. It was impossible to resist her good humor. Judith agreed to carry on with the misfortune of the Maccabers. Abigail registered disapproval of the evening's program by refusing to appear at the supper table. She kept to her bed the greater part of the day, but she usually got up for the evening meal. Richard's habit was to enter the house through her room, which had an outside door, assist her to dress, and bring her out to the dining room. But tonight, she was not with him. He came alone from his wife's room, carefully shaved and brushed and wearing his broadcloth suit in honor of the expected company. But his lips were tight and there was color in his cheeks as he explained that Abigail did not feel like coming to the table. Could Millie fix a tray? Do you suppose she'll eat it? Asked Miss Anne doubtfully. I'll have to feed her, he said. Impulsively, Judah spoke. No, you must stay with your friends. Let me take the tray in. I can get her to eat. He looked at Judith with a curious mingling of gratitude and desperation. Do you suppose you could? I can try. She seems to like me. Yes, I've noticed that. He spoke in an odd tone, as though the fact puzzled him. But Miss Judith shouldn't be allowed to spoil her own supper waiting on Abigail, said his mother. No, of course not he said quickly. Though I appreciate your kindness, Miss Judith. It was not her supper which Judith was loath to miss, but the enjoyment of dining with Richard and his friends. Nevertheless, she insisted. Your place is in here. Please let me take the tray to Miss Abigail. We can eat our suppers together. In the end, he acquiesced. She found the invalid lying on her back, hands crossed on her breasts, looking as much like a corpse as possible. When she set the tray on a table by the bed, Abigail demanded, Where's Richard? He's taking care of his friends. Don't you hear them? Already the sound of masculine voices and laughter floated down the hall. Judith drew a chair to the bedside and spread a napkin over Abigail's nightgown. Would you like to hold on to your own plate, or shall I feed you? I know it's hard to feed oneself in bed said Judith tactfully. But Abigail would neither eat nor be fed. I told him I wouldn't eat any supper. I'll show him, 
For a second, Judith contemplated the exquisite pleasure it would afford her to strangle the woman on the bed. She set the plate back on the table and picked up her own knife and fork. I hope you don't mind if I go on with my own supper. I've had a busy day. I'm hungry. Judith began eating with as keen an appetite as though the sick woman were not lying there watching her, like the death's head at the feast. When she had finished her meal, she tried once more. Shall I have your supper warmed up for you? I'm afraid it's getting cold. Abigail said, I don't want anything. Take it away. Judith pushed the table back against the wall. Abigail's hands still lay folded upon her shrunken breast. Her eyes stared at the ceiling. She said in a hollow tone, I'm dying. He'll see. When I'm dead, he'll believe I knew what I was talking about. Her face in the lamplight was bloodless. For a moment, Judith felt a thrill of alarm. Then Abigail flopped on her side and with reassuring spitefulness demanded, Where's that girl? What girl? You know what girl? The one you whipped. Oh, you mean Thorn. She's at the Mitchells this week. She hasn't been around here? I haven't seen her. A look of satisfaction stole over the sick woman's face. Have you whipped her anymore? A feeling of revulsion swept Judith. She felt something akin to abhorrence for the woman on the bed. No, Mrs. Tomlinson, I have not whipped Thorn. She hasn't needed it. She's not a bad girl. She's just... a little different. That's because she's a witch! Judith remained silent, too exasperated to argue. You don't believe in witches, do you? said Abigail. Certainly not. That's because you don't read your Bible. Abigail rose on her elbow and reached for the well-worn testament on the stand. Here, read Luke chapter 8, verse 2, if you think I'm crazy. Judith took the book and turned the silky pages till she came to the passage. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. There! Abigail interrupted triumphantly. Do you believe the Bible or don't you? Judith laid the book back on the table. Devils, as referred to in the Orient, she said, mean nothing more nor less than epilepsy. Is Thorn an epileptic? She's a witch, like those witches in the play Richard read to us. Abigail, who frowned upon all profane literature, had been avidly interested in the reading of Macbeth. They weren't epileptics, were they? Neither were the witches in the Bible epileptics. I haven't got an Old Testament here. She was sitting up in bed now in her excitement. But just you read the story of Saul and the witch of Ender. First book of Samuel, chapter 28, verse 7. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman at night. And he said, Divine unto me, I pray thee, by the familiar spirit, 
and bring me up whomsoever I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirit, and the wizards out of this land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life, to cause me to die? And Saul sware to her by Jehovah, saying, As Jehovah Judith had read the story. She inquired, Is Thorn mediumistic? This was a strange word in Abigail's vocabulary. What do you mean? The witch of Endor was a medium. She called up the spirit of Samuel and let Saul talk to him. Does Thorn claim to get messages from people who are dead? Abigail lay back on her pillow with a disgruntled sniff. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. She's full of tricks. What kind of tricks? asked Judith curiously. She had often wondered what went on behind Thorne's big geography in school to cause such distraction among the pupils. Devilish tricks, said Abigail. I've seen her make a rose bloom right out of thin air. And once she took a live baby chick out of Jesse Moffat's cap when he had just taken it off his head. Judith was suddenly enlightened. But that's not witchcraft. That's sleight of hand. I saw a man in Chicago do that sort of thing. Where did Thorne learn such tricks? That's what I want to know. Nobody could do things like that unless they were in league with the devil. But Judith was thinking rapidly. How did Thorne come to live here? She asked. There was a terrible storm one night, and the bridge over Little Raccoon went out. A covered wagon went with it. Richard was coming home from the debating society and saw the accident. Everybody in the wagon was drowned except this girl. At least, that's the story he told. Though, it always seemed funny to me that no trace of wagon, horses, or drowned bodies was ever found. And he brought the child home with him? Yes, said Abigail shortly. I was sitting in the front room with Miss Anne, my own two babies asleep in a trundle, when he came in. He had this girl in his arms, wrapped up in his coat like a drowned puppy. All she could tell about herself was that her folks had been moving to Kansas. How long ago was that? asked Judith. More than a year ago. Thorne must have been about twelve then. She couldn't be much over thirteen now. Abigail went on bitterly. He promised that he would find a home for her, right away, but she's still here. It isn't always easy to find a home for an orphan. He won't try. He refused to give her to a family in Woodbridge who wanted a girl to work for her board and keep. No, thought Judith, it would have taken a harder man than Richard Tomlinson to have given that elfin child into servitude. Abigail continued bitterly. She's bewitched him. He won't let her be treated as one of the help. He gives her his name and sends her to school and treats her like his own child. Except that she's much too old to be his child. He thinks more of her than of his sons. He thinks more of her than he does of me. Ah, there was the rub. Judith said discreetly, 
I can see how you might have found it inconvenient to take another child to raise when you already had two of your own. But of course she's not a witch. But Abigail's gloom did not lighten. I've been ill ever since she came here. How do you explain that? Judith might have explained that jealousy was a slow poison, but she only smiled. That's just a coincidence. You're not really ill, only nervous. You'd be well in no time if you just start eating again. Come, let's begin now. I'm going to take your supper out to the kitchen and warm it up. Then I'm coming back and I'll sit with you while you eat. Abigail made no protest as Judith carried out the tray. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at valeriemoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. Hello. My name is Jason Schnell. I have had the pleasure to read from the Gospel of Luke, as well as the voice of the Witch of Endor, and drummer, the salesman. You can find me at toasterfire2 at gmail.com. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast, called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com and on my Instagram, at kmorgan with two A's. Hey everybody, my name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast, Have Not Seen This. Hi, my name is Rain, like the weather, and I will, will be playing the role of Abigail. Uh, I have a YouTube page called WWE What If, where I talk about wrestling reviews and my anger against some storylines that I can't stand. Hi, my name is Zane Telch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, and I'm the voice of Ricky. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wrestle Life Radio. But wait. This isn't Wrestle Life Radio, but this is Matt Sin from Wrestle Life Radio. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, and I play the role of Doc Baird. You can find me at WrestleLifeMatt on Instagram and Twitter, but please follow my show at WrestleLifeRadio on Facebook and Instagram and WrestleLifePod on Twitter. You can listen to us anywhere you get your shows, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public, and of course, Anchor. I look forward to interacting with all of you very soon. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. And that plate of gingerbread goes with it. Jesse Moffat hasn't brought the apples up yet. When he does, we'll take a bowl of them in too. Now have you got everything?
asked Masan briskly as Judith hesitated, tray in hand. Do you suppose it's all right for me to go in there? Flossie can't give any more milk. Why? She's sick. See? She can't hold her head up. She made a cow out of a cucumber and milked it right in front of our eyes. If you think I'm crazy, ask Miss Judith. She's not your wife. She has no grudge against your little pet. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts, and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R57. 9915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.